Hey everyone, it's Will and James here. Welcome to the Pure Sport Project. We want to jump into the minds of people we find inspiring from all walks of life. Bringing you their stories, lessons learned along the way, and future plans. So tune in for some of them wholesome yarns. Welcome back to the Pure Sport Project. We're joined by the man, Chris Williamson, host of Modern Wisdom Podcast. And actually, you do a lot of stuff and I know a fair few things about you as well that I had no idea. And we'll get into those. But anyway, let's, uh, when we normally do these, we let the guests introduce themselves just because that's more interesting. They tell us stuff that we maybe don't know. And they probably, we probably do you a disservice anyway. So after you, Chris, we'll let you introduce yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is Chris Williamson. I'm a podcaster and entrepreneur from the UK. I have been a club promoter for a decade and a half. I've run a lot of club nights. I own Voodoo Events, which is a big events company in the north of the UK. I went on Take Me Out. I went on Love Island, which was fun. Blue ticks, free charcoal toothpaste, all the big stuff. And then decided to start a podcast about three and a half years ago, Modern Wisdom, which is my passion project. And we're now 320 episodes into that. I manage some properties. I'm interested in philosophy and physics and culture and anything else that keeps my curiosity satisfied and uh i'm very very looking forward to speaking to you two today james have you ever felt less intelligent or less talented i don't understand how you manage it to be honest <laughs> do you know what when i listen so i'm a big fan of modern wisdom and have been some time even like before we knew each other before we had spoken and that was probably one of the reasons i actually reached out to you was because of modern wisdom and i remember listening to one thing that you said and you said you're just curious and that was exactly the word that I was looking for to describe myself. Like I have this thirst for knowledge and a lot of it is just completely irrelevant. You know, like I think I watched this morning something something to do with like you have this bone floating in your throat which allows you to talk that apes, other apes don't have. Like and I watched that this morning, literally like 5.25 in the morning. I woke up and was like, right, I'm watching this. And what curious we learn today? is the word that describes me and it's ever since I was a kid exactly the same and you absolutely hit the nail on the head with that word and I fully understand where you're coming from but you're on another level I've seen the mountain of books that you have and it's so impressive is that in the background there I can see it yeah it's a vertical vertical one but then they're all on the floor they're all on the floor down there as well so I need I need another one soon so where did that come from the is it something you've had since a kid or is it something that you've kind of grown up and developed over time since you started the podcast or yeah where did it come from yeah very innate i think it's weird right coming from a working class background curiosity is not a personality trait that you're ever really taught to cultivate and no one ever values the curiosity you're seen as being nosy as a kid or a gobshite or you talk too much or you you're listening too much or whatever it might be and um yeah so for a long time i guess i was i kind of dampened down my curiosity wasn't something that paid much attention to or really prided myself in. But um, yeah, by whatever quirk of the simulation that we're in for this version, you can kind of utilize your curiosity and monetize it and turn it into a project. And then other people seem to enjoy that. It's the single most powerful personality trait that I think people can have. It just constantly pulls you forward to want to find out interesting things without an agenda as well. I don't care about whether there's a bone in your throat or a tendon in your throat or a ligament in your throat. I don't care about what the outcome is. I'm simply curious about the process to get there. And I think it helps you to get away with releases ego. It makes you more balanced in your view, your worldview 
It's a superpower. Yeah, hundred percent. We'll come back to the simulation in a bit because I'll chat to. You. I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love stuff like that. Like, it blows my mind. Honestly, the things that are on the internet just blow my mind. But um, was it something like at school? Was it something that you were the same? Like you had that curiosity, and it was maybe stifled slightly, or is it something that just you know, like as you got older? I think I already asked that. But when you were at school, was it something that? really like you wanted to learn because for me at school I wasn't really that interested in the stuff that they were teaching me I wanted to learn what I wanted to learn about and as I got older you can start to narrow your kind of field of the things that you learn you go to university and you learn and now I'm out of university I can literally learn whatever I want if I want to learn about simulation theory or the stoned ape theory I can learn about that stuff and no one's going to tell me otherwise well, isn't it weird that you spend, what, 18 years? I spent 18 years in full-time education and didn't have a love for learning. Then about 10 years out of being at uni, no, like five years out of being at uni, I fell back in love with learning again. So it's so bizarre that an education system can completely kill your desire to learn stuff. But I think because of some of the subjects that you're taught and the ways that they're taught, you know, I did a master's at uni. I did a bachelor's and a master's at uni with a year in industry and um, I didn't learn anything about business. I learned more about business in the first week of running my own business than I did in five years of doing degrees. So yeah, it's, um, and then now think about it. Everyone's learning stuff, podcasts, online learning portals, these massive online cooperative courses or whatever they're called, like they're everywhere. Do you think it's a fixable thing from a young age? Do you think there is scope for the education system to be able to cater for everyone's needs or do we do you think having this strict rigid or somewhat rigid system growing up is the best we can do basically i don't know man that's a big question i i have some buddies that are super passionate into the we need to renovate the education system argument um i'm not hugely one of them i kind of feel like there's a base of understanding that all kids need i'm friends with some primary school teachers and you get especially after covid and children haven't been in school there's some eight-year-olds that can't do their sort of two and three times tables consistently. So they just need to spend time. It's not, it's, it's pointless teaching them about mindfulness at seven years old. It's like they need to fucking count. They have to be able to count 10. So when you get a little bit older, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what is going to change. But as the marketplace for ideas increases and someone, instead of going to university and getting a piece of paper, which is basically a signal of commitment and authenticity it's a hard to fake signal of authenticity and commitment maybe now there'll be a new online accreditation where people can learn slightly more practical like a practical mba but for anything you know for life coaching or mindfulness or art or politics or communication theory or anything whatever it is throat throat mechanics um it could be anything honestly i'll send you the video it's quite interesting about how we learn to speak and yeah I'll send you it. Anyway, but yeah, I always thought school and considered school as you do learn things, but you learn how to learn. And all these different subjects that you study teach you a slightly different way of learning things. And that's how I always considered school. Like obviously the things that you learn are important, but a lot of them aren't important. And you see these people complaining, like I don't use Pythagoras theorem anymore, blah, blah, blah. But they teach you how to learn particular things. So when Do you, you leave, think that you actually did get taught how to learn in school and uni? Because I didn't. The way that you learn is through spaced repetition, 
you learn through a forgetting curve. You have the default mode network and the, the other one, you have short-term memory, working memory, and you have long-term memory and you have a bottleneck and you have four different spots within your working memory that you can move through. And it's all about recall, not repetition. And all of this sort of stuff is from stuff, things that I read within the last five years. I didn't know any of this at university. So I went through 18 years of full-time education and didn't learn the basics of how the memory system and the learning system works. Now, I understand that's a bit different now. A lot of medical students use stuff like Anki, which is a spaced repetition software, and they read books like Peter C. Brown's Make It Stick, or they do the Learning How to Learn course, which is the number one online uh, free online course that you can get. But I never learned any of that. I never once was taught that this is how you remember stuff. This is how to revise. It was like, there's the course material. Good luck in the exam. When I said it, I meant it like I learned how I learn, not in terms of like the textbook ways of how your brain recalls things. It was like the way I learn to do things is I do it. If someone puts on a whiteboard, I don't learn by reading it from a whiteboard. I have to go and do it and actually try it myself and learn that I did it the wrong way. And then I learn from doing it the wrong way. That's what I meant by that. And that that's how I learned how I learned. And then I can apply that now. When I leave and try and learn something now, for me to go and read a book, no chance. I'll get distracted. There'll be a gust of wind and I'll be distracted by it, right? Whereas if I watch a YouTube video or I listen to a podcast, even listening to a podcast, I will struggle to learn from listening to it. But if I watch the YouTube video of the podcast, I'm involved and I understand everything that's going on to an extent. Unless it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson, it blows my mind. But I will absorb more of that knowledge than if I was to read that on a bit of paper. I get it, man. I get it. It makes sense. So talk to me, Chris, about, about the nightclubs days. You're still in those, aren't you, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm still director of voodoo events, yeah. Was there, was there a tipping point in that period where you said you started relearning again sort of five years after university? Was there a tipping point where you may have maybe lost the egotistical, I just want to party lifestyle back into learning or were you always on a on a, on the same course you you wanted to enjoy life but you also wanted to learn at the same time was there was there a moment where that changed or has it been the same throughout so yeah there was a change it was just after love island to be honest i didn't it didn't have a full existential crisis impulse for me but it wasn't far off i just went on there and it was kind of the pinnacle of party boy lots of young guys that are listening might feel this right you get towards the end of your 20s and you've still got the values and the absorbed metrics of success that other guys traditionally gave you when you were younger. So the girls that you're seeing or the amount that you're going out and partying or the money that you've got or the car that you drive or the clothes that you're wearing or whatever it might be. And Love Island obviously is kind of, that's like the pro, that's a Premier League of that, right? It is precisely all about how do you look, who are you dating, how much can you play the status game of the hierarchy climbing up and climbing down and um i came out of that and i was like look this isn't me there's something seriously up here and that meant i needed to work out what was going on and off the back of that i ended up spending a fair bit of time exposing myself to mindful content like the school of life and jordan peterson and a lot of joe rogan a lot of sam harris and um i just thought look that this isn't me that feels a little bit more like it is me. When I listen to that sort of content, it it makes it feel it makes me feel understood, and I hadn't felt understood for quite a while. And this is the subject. I did a TED talk, a couple of uh, TEDx talk, two three months ago, and um, this is the subject of that. That 
you can hide yourself under a ton of personas for a very long time. And if you do that for long enough, you can bury it so deep down that you don't know who you are anymore and you have to excavate it like an archaeologist. And you're like, is this useful to me anymore? No, it's not. Okay, right. I'll dig a bit deeper. Is this useful to me anymore? No, it's not. That was from the guys I lived with at university and you pick this up. No, that's something that I picked up while I was in school because I wanted to be popular. No, that's not useful. And then eventually you get to something that feels a bit more concrete. You start to hit off something that feels like, I know, a steel girder or a stone. And you're like, okay, so here's the foundations. I can start to build up from there. So yeah, not not everyone goes on Love Island to be catapulted towards a life that's a bit more virtuous, but um, definitely an army of one. So I know this about you, but I don't think all of our listeners will know, but you were on the first series of Love Island. What was your reason for applying for that? YOLO. (laughs) (laughs) That was just a YOLO. It was the year when YOLO was a word, right? Yeah, I guess no one really knew. But going into it, did you know what was going to kind of become of yourself afterwards? Like, obviously you become quite well known, but I don't think it's on the scale of, you know, like the likes of an Adam Collard that's gone on recently. I know you're friends with him and he's, you know, up in the millions of followers now. But back then it wasn't quite not at as all. big, was it? No, not at all. The first season was just a, a full cost broadcast dress rehearsal for all of the subsequent seasons. Like it doubles in popularity pretty much every single year. So you think now, you go on Love Island for a week and you'll come off with, what, maybe a couple of hundred thousand to half a million followers on Instagram. Whereas the people that went on and came off after winning, the starting, like if you were on from the beginning and came off and you'd won, it was worth about a hundred thousand followers, which is insane when you think about that now. People coming off with one million pound boohoo pretty little thing deals and a couple of million followers and basically you're set for what the next decade just doing influence work and presenting and stuff like that it wasn't the same but also you didn't know what you were getting into so we didn't know if it was going to be cut and edited like a Geordie Shaw or an X on the beach because that was what it was like that was all that really was on tv you had take me out that was super fluffy basically Cilla Black's blind date for 20 the 2010s but then on the other side you had your ex on the beach and your Geordie Shaw, which was really messy. And it was all about shagging and birds and booking and stuff like that. And we didn't know where it was going to be edited between the two. And it turns out it's quite a fluffy show, really. They play off some of the storylines, but you're not allowed to drink a lot. And it's not really about the sex. And it's not really about getting messy and, and fights and arguments and stuff like that. Yeah, it was a different experience, I think, for me than it was for pretty much every other season that came after. I know you've just mentioned Take Me Out there. <laughs> I've got that in my notes, actually. And talking about Fluffy, next to Take Me Out, I've got the hair. My hairdo. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was that about? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I just I had a thing at uni. I had this huge... So I've got curly hair, and then I just didn't cut it for ages, and it got bigger. It doesn't get longer. It gets bigger. Same as me. Yeah. That's why I got skinhead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... The solution, I don't know, I was a club promoter and I needed something that was going to make me stand out. And it just ended up being, it wasn't like I'd planned it, but yeah, I ended up having big hair. And then before I knew it, I was 24 and on Take Me Out and had this huge afro and then 4 million people were watching. And then a year after that, I was like, look, right, okay, you quarter of a way to a century, you need to get rid of this. Yeah, I hadn't seen it. I just Googled it. <laughs> That's more than I thought it was going to be. Holy shit. It's impressive. Is that what yours would look like? Definitely. Wow. We've got the same hair. I mean, it's a very good looking man. Jesus Christ. 
So have you been on any, any other shows? So Love Island, Take Me Out. These are two pretty big shows in terms of the amount of viewers they get. Anything else? No, that was it. Like Geordie Shaw was huge when I was partying in Newcastle throughout my 20s. So you'd go back to the house and party with them and stuff, but not really, not as a cast member. I haven't been on anything else. I did that with them in Sydney when they were there. Did you? Yeah. I had to sign an NDA and everything. I felt well popular. <laughs> Doing it on the show, it doesn't matter. So I know we'll, we'll dive into a few other things in a second, but what made you start up the nightlife business kind of that side of things. Was that because back then that was the kind of lifestyle you had and you started that business? Yeah. So I was 18, sat down after Freshers Week in this first ever seminar I had. And I sat next to this guy and I said, I'm skint. I managed to spend all of my student loan pretty much in Freshers Week and on rent. And he said, oh, well, I used to work for this company in Leeds and you can come to me to this meeting and you might be able to get a flyering job for clubs. I was like, Honestly, I'll take anything. And that guy that I sat next to 14 years later today is still my business partner. So I was groomsman at his wedding and it was still directors of a bunch of different companies together. So it was just fortunate. I ended up having a knack for it, as a lot of people do. You find something that you've got a talent for when you're young. And if you get first mover advantage, it was a good time in the market. And before we knew it, we were running the biggest Saturday in Newcastle. And that was where Geordie Shaw went every single week. And then because they were going, that further exploded it. And... um. Yeah, I worked 208 Saturdays in a row without a weekend off. Um, and now we have 500 members of staff for us. We're in Leeds, we're in Newcastle, we've got a bar down in Leeds, we've got all sorts of stuff. What part of your life does that business feed now? Because obviously at the start it was you were skint, you were a party boy. So how has your perspective changed of that business? Yeah, I mean, it's still a money earner. For me, primarily it's a, a source of revenue, but I enjoy the challenge that nightlife brings. It's a very unique industry. It's super fast moving. It's a really unique insight into human nature. So the entire industry is built on status. How high or low is the perception of you and associatively the company that you work for and all the different people that you're trying to recruit and it's rapid. So it was just like a jump in at the deep end, how to run a business. For me now, it's a lot more of an advisory role. You're basically a board member, right? Because there's no situation that we encounter after 14 years in this industry that we haven't seen before. Tonight, the, the event that we have on this evening, <laughs> this is actually a new one. Every single one of the managers at the venue that we operate on a Thursday has COVID. So we've had to move the event to a different venue. But even that is just, it's only a couple of emails and a, and a couple of phone calls and it's done and we know what we need to do. So yeah, it's cool. After a little while, people, again, that have worked in an industry for a long time, the sense of mastery that you have from doing anything consistently for a long time is really satisfying. They're actually like, yeah, this is sick. I know there's no problem that I can't deal with. Talking of COVID, how was that? Obviously, you've got multiple things going on, but that particular, the nightlife scene, how has that been affected for you in the last year? Obviously, things closed down. And then what was your thought process in like, well, what are you going to do for the next <laughs> year? Well, no. well, I don't know. It was like two weeks at the first, at the start of lockdown. It was like, yeah. it's been closed for like two weeks. And then it was uh, a month and it got extended and extended. What was your kind of thought process about how you were going to manage that? It's been the worst year for nightlife in living memory. You know, it's been shut. We haven't, we haven't opened. We haven't had vertical drinking, so dance floors in... 15 months, 16 months. And we don't know if the 21st of June is going to reopen in the way that it it should do. That might get pushed back. Yeah, not ideal in terms of that. But 
very fortunately for me, I got other stuff going on. I got the podcast. I got a bunch of properties that I own and manage and other things that I wanted to do. And when you're going, it's a really rough industry. Anyone that works in nightlife knows what I mean. You know, staying up until three in the morning, multiple nights per week is brutal. It really is. The World Health Organization actually classify any form of shift work as a carcinogenic risk. Now it's a health risk because that's how debilitating it is to your longevity, just not having a stable sleep and wake pattern. So this is the first time that me and everyone else in the nightlife industry has had a stable sleep and wake pattern ever, ever in my adult life since 18. The first time I've got up and gone to bed at the same time, seven days a week, which is mad, but it's been a learning process. Everyone's had to let go of their egos even more so than they already had done. You can't rely on how busy your night is and how much money you're making because your night's shut and you're not making any money. See, Will just tried to give me shit for ordering a decaf coffee. It's four o'clock and I had a decaf. And Good that man. just says why sleep is so important. And like we we preach about sleep with CBD and the nootropics that we've got. And this guy here is trying to give me shit about ordering a decaf coffee at four in the afternoon. Dude, come on. You're supposed to be one of the initiates. I am. I just needed a little pick-me-up, all right? <laughs> and I don't... Or, if, if I'm having decaf, I just don't order a coffee unless... It's like late at night and then I'll, I'll let it slide. Right. So we've gone from Sorry. <laughs> one extreme. So you've gone from like managing this nightlife and I'm fascinated by the sobriety. Is that, have I said that right? Sobriety. So what made you do that? And I know you've just passed the thousand days mark, which is unbelievably impressive. And I think your stand on it as well about like, you're not against drinking and you're not saying that you'll never have another drink again. But what was it? in the first place that made you start that. And obviously like you've seen the benefits of not drinking um, in terms of like your productivity and everything else that comes along with it. But what was it that made you start it? Cause you're obviously managing nightlife. So it's so easy for you to just probably pop out for a night out multiple times a week, but you've gone the other end of the spectrum where you've just gone, no, actually I'm not going to drink. And do you go out just, you don't drink? Yeah. So what I realized was I didn't have anything left to learn from drinking. It took me to the same place every single time. It's a very particular type of drug, alcohol. It, it's very global. It's quite, quite intense. You know, if you if anyone has had psychedelics before, no two mushroom trips are the same. But every time that you have ten to fifteen pints, it is the same because it's such a global hammer blow to your to your system. Right? I was like, right, I've got nothing left to learn. I'm. I want to do things. I want to make changes. This all coincided, right? Existential crisis coming out of Love Island. Who am I? What do I want to do with my life? This isn't who I thought I was supposed to be. I need more time and consistency to be able to focus myself and do stuff that's just different. What's the easiest way that I can make a lifestyle change that will give me that time? And I realized that once a week or once every couple of weeks, I was written off for a day and maybe a day and a half and if you look at your time like a set of accounts, at the end of the year, your accountant would be like, hang on, are you telling me that you're losing one seventh to one fourteenth of your life hanging out of your ass in bed, eating dominoes, ordering Deliveroo, just feeling like crap? Are you really telling me? And in the same breath, you're saying you don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. This is stupid. And I just had that conversation with myself. I was like, right, I'll go sober for six months. Did it. Loved it. Found it challenging in the beginning, but only for the first couple of months. Working in nightlife, yeah quite easily. There was one period where we were running five nights a week. So I would have a beer when I got to work, just a small little uh, bottle. And then I'd have one as I was cashing up. So that would be 10 beers a week, which is over 
the advised weekly allowance without having a night out and essentially without being drunk either. I could have driven every single night having had that level of intake and yet it was still over the top. So it's uh, what I do for work, everybody else does for fun. It's like being a porn star, right? Like imagine you've spent a long hard day in the office as a porn star and you get home and your partner's like, all right, honey, do you fancy a fancy, fancy an early night? And you're like, oh, come on, mate. I've had it all day. And um, Personally, I would use a chef for that analogy about <laughs> cooking and then uh, coming home and having to cook dinner, but porn star works. I so, respect it. <laughs> well, Nels. Um, so yeah, man, that was it. Went, went sober, uh, really enjoyed it. Cognitively was quicker, had more time, had more money, had more calories to spend on things that I truly cared about. Built a meditation habit in that first six months that I still use today. So it's like, it's like dieting down once and then recomping back up really slowly and being lean for the next decade because you did that one diet, but you did it really, really well. And that first stint of sobriety, I went back to drinking and then I've just flip-flopped backwards and forwards. And since then, I think I've drank for about eight months and I've been sober for the best part of four years. And then, yeah, I just broke a thousand days. And then last weekend or the bank holiday weekend, two weeks ago, had a few beers and a couple of glasses of wine. And that, that, that was all it took to get me fairly, uh, fairly drunk. But that's me now. I'm no longer, I'll just have a few drinks here and there when I want to, because maybe I've got something, I think I've learned everything that I have to learn from sobriety now. I'm like, okay, what does it feel like to reintegrate being a bit more social and going out and staying out a bit later as opposed to always being the guy with the car? So maybe there's something to learn for me from alcohol. So now you've met balance. Yeah, maybe. So I, I, have, a, I have a theory around this for alcohol that every drink you have makes not having a subsequent drink more difficult, right? Everyone knows this. You go out for one and then you have a couple and then there's a bottle of wine and then it's a kebab and a fight at three in the morning, right? Like everybody's been there and you wake up the next day and you're like, oh my God, this got out of my hand. How, how did that happen? And the problem is that it's an inhibition reduction echo chamber, right? Every drink you have makes not having a subsequent one more difficult. So saying I'm just going out for three or something, it's like, well, the difference between three and 10 actually isn't that much. The difference between zero and one is everything. So for me personally, the best way to do it is to send it or to not send it at all. And that's the way that I've gone about things. That being said, there are probably some people who can have a perfectly fine having a beer on a night time or whatever it might be. But if you're just having one beer, I don't really understand... Personally, for me, there are better tasting things that I can have, and there is no safe level of alcohol consumption. So I went deep into the health effects. There's the biggest alcohol study in history was done by The Lancet. It was over 100,000 people across pretty much every country on the planet, every single type of culture, and there's no safe level of it. The only thing that people used to say was that if you take red wine, there's resveratrol and some other uh, minerals and stuff that you get in that. But even that, even the benefits that you get from that level of alcohol consumption is offset by the increased level of heart risk by the alcohol that you're drinking. So there's no, no safe level of alcohol consumption. Every drink you have pushes you closer to death. And that's a consideration that you need to take. How much do I want to have this beer? Do I want to have it a tiny half of a thousandth of a percent to reduce my health? Well, maybe we do stuff like that all the time. But for me, it's not that much of a consideration. That being said, I managed to piss off a bunch of people in the sobriety community because I got a following from going sober, ex-club promoter, now sobriety advocate, 
which was good for the sobriety community. But then I said, well, I'm not going to be sober forever. I don't think it's an ideology. I don't think it's a superior way of life. I just think it's a good, useful productivity tool. And anyone that says that alcohol doesn't help you have a better night out hasn't had a good night out. I'm a club promoter at heart, right? Like I'm a, I'm a party boy. So um, that pissed them off as well. Uh, having already pissed off the club promotion comp- like people because I'd said that I was going sober and all the rest of it. So yeah, I managed to make enemies of pretty much everyone, which appears to be a, um, like a common thread talent of mine. Well, we're your friends. <laughs> cool. I'm glad about that. Unless you say something that might piss us off and then yeah, CBD you've lost us as well. I'm pretty bulletproof. You can, <laughs> you can, you can pretty much say anything. I'll be like, yeah, fair fucks. Go ahead. Come on. Um, do you take that approach with your nutrition as well? Are you that kind of strict? I know I've seen stories on your Instagram of when you're going to a cut and you've just weighed your food and it's like 15 kilos of cabbage basically yeah, in a big so bowl. Bad. But do you take that approach with your nutrition in terms of like, obviously there's certain foods that are probably less optimal for your health and then there's some that are more optimal or are you kind of a, a macro counter or what do you do? What's your take on your own nutrition? Yeah, so that's probably something that I need to optimize just because I'm not a fantastic cook. I don't have like a huge repertoire of meals. So I think a lot of people make cuts harder than they need to be because you only have maybe two or three low calorie meals that you can make in the locker. And because of that, you're constantly eating. It's already You're already on low cals and then you're only eating the same stuff over and over again. But yeah, I think if you're going to cut, just get rid of all of the sweets get rid of all of the chocolates, get rid of all of the anything that's going to tempt you to break your diet from the house. For me, I'm very much a all or nothing type of person, type of eater. And with alcohol, nothing or full send. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think very many people are like that. Humans are like that, right? The, the messy middle is what everybody tries to achieve, but it's really, really hard, super hard to do things in moderation. Okay, there's a packet of biscuits in front of you. I want you to have one biscuit. So, oh, one? You've been serious? Big pack of Maryland cookies. You're like, all right, well, you have one and then you're tempted to have more. But if you say, right, you can have them all or you can have none of them, uh, all right, fair enough. Because we attach our identity. I am the sort of person that eats all of the cookies or doesn't eat any of the cookies. I am the sort of person that eats one of the cookies and then puts the packet back down. That doesn't really seem to work. So yeah, I haven't done a hard cut in a while. I snapped my Achilles last year and gyms have been closed for quite a while. So I need to, I've gained a bit of lockdown weight. I need to do like a really hard cut to, to try and bring that back. So we're what, 30 minutes in and we haven't even touched on probably the thing that I think you're probably most well known for. And that is modern wisdom. So like that was how I kind of discovered who you were. I was, I think I was some introduced the podcast I'd asked for some recommendations and I started listening to yours. And honestly, I was just fascinated by the guests that you had on. And not only did you interview them really well, but you had such insight and how you could have conversations with them and pull on your own experience as well. I found it absolutely fascinating and compared to other people like us, we probably just chat to people and don't have a lot to kind of call upon ourselves. But what made you start the the podcast in the first place? Because we're relatively new to this and I don't know about you, but I actually really enjoy doing the podcast and chatting to people. And I can I see how you've developed like a real passion for it as well. But what made you start Modern Wisdom? I got invited on some other shows and I thought it was really fun. I got to have conversations with people and I enjoyed being precise with my speech. I think anyone that's listening that doesn't have one conversation per week for about half an hour with a friend 
where it's uninterrupted, where their phones are out of the room, I think you're missing out on something that's very fundamental. I think that if you can find a friend that you know is verbally agile and say, okay, let's, let's just talk about something. What do you think about Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather's most recent fight? Or what do you think about politics or are there aliens or what's this 60 minutes release from the Pentagon going to be or whatever it might be, all that stuff. It really does make you feel like you've done a mental floss and I enjoyed it. So I thought, how can I do this more? I'll start my own show. That was it. And what was the plan? Because obviously it's a bit of a beast now. You know, I, I don't know if you're at the 200,000, but you must be very close to yeah, 200,000 YouTube. You just, just broke, broke that up? the other day. Yeah, yeah. And then how many subscribers on just the audio podcast have you got now? Or how many views? 12 million or something? You don't know. Yeah, so it's 20, like 20, over 20 million plays like across everything now. Jeez, it was like 12 million not long ago. I spoke yeah. to you about it. So, well, we broke, it took three and a half, just over three years to do 100,000 subs. And then it took three and a half months to do the next 100,000. So the, the second 100,000 was significantly easier. So when you started, was there a plan of being like, I want to get to this level of success in terms of how many listens or how many subscribers or it just kind of like, just do it and, and see what happens? Yeah, very much so. I needed a passion project. Everything that I'd ever done in my life was a commercial enterprise. I'd done, I'd been a DJ, I'd modeled, I'd still do a commercial model for years and years and years. And it was just a commercial enterprise. I need, I wanted money. I didn't need money, but I wanted more money. And uh, I wanted something that was just for me, for my facilitating and indulging my own curiosities and what I wanted. And um, yeah, this podcast was a big part of that. So I just started doing it. And then as with most stuff, when you do something purely for the sheer joy of it, you end up finding out that you're not that bad at it and that you're actually able to work quite hard because it doesn't feel like a chore. And yeah, three and a bit years later, you end up doing three episodes a week and speaking to Jordan Peterson and porn stars and Seth Godin and... We're Mitch not porn stars. There wasn't it? Well, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> we dabble, but I wouldn't say it was like a title. It's amateur. Impl implied only, Chris. You know. It's amateur. Um, do you ever go back and listen to your first podcast and think, oh, yes. what was I doing back then? Well, no, so I haven't gone back and listened to it, but I, I can remember it. And every so often something will pop up. I don't know. I listened to an intro that I did a little while ago and yeah it's terrible it's just but everyone sucks the only difference is when you first start playing a sport like rugby or or cricket or something there aren't usually perfectly captured records of just how rubbish you were <laughs> yeah. you know i mean you first ever run out onto a rugby field where you get completely flattened by some huge beast from the back and you drop the ball and the other team wins it's not usually captured in perfect fidelity on the internet for the rest of time. I'd love to go back and watch me try and learn how to spin pass off my other hand. I could do it one <laughs> way. And, and then I had county trials and the e email before it was like, you need to learn how to spin pass off both hands. And I was like, I haven't got that. So I had to just, I went into my bedroom and just threw a ball against the wall for hours trying to learn how to spin off my other hand. And yeah, now I don't know which one's my good one. Weren't you a fly half? Yeah. How but old I, were you for this trial? About 15. But I played football up to that point, so I didn't need to. So you churn out, what, three episodes a week at the moment? That's a lot. What I struggle to find, and I spoke to you on the phone about this actually the other day, is how do you find the time to research the people that you're interviewing in enough depth 
to hold a one-to-one conversation with them and do three a week. And honestly, that blows my mind. Like obviously that stack of books behind you is probably part of it, but my brain could not handle that amount of information on a regular basis, I don't think. You don't actually need to know everything, right? The guest's there to tell you all of the stuff that they know. You just need to know enough to be able to ask, ask the questions that push them in the right direction. So for the most part, unless it's a really cleverly named chaptered book, you could probably just read the chapter titles and the, the, the introductions of each of the chapters and be like, oh, okay, so this is this thing. I don't really care about that. What's this? Oh, that's quite interesting. We're going to ask him about this and ask him about this and ask him about this. And there you're done. And then other, like, I had Nicole Arbor on the Dear Fat People, uh, the girl that did that Dear Fat People video a few years ago. I had her on yesterday and I had two questions, but I just knew that the conversation would go in a direction. After a while, you end up having kind of a network of other things that you can dip into. Um, like Rogan specifically. So I have a bunch of buddies who've been on Rogan and they say that the most difficult thing about getting ready for his show is that it's so meandering. He has no set structure. There's no brief. You don't get a right, mate, so we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about this. If Joe's had like a particularly big dump that morning, that might be the first thing that you talk about, like after he after he does the intro. It's Joe Rogan podcast, check it out. God, I've had a big dump there, Michael. <laughs> you just think, okay, so if Joe is able to rely on his innate ability to have a conversation, he's, he's a professional conversationalist. So you can get away with far less prep than it feels like. Some of the guys, you know, if you've got Michio Kaku on like a hardcore physicist that I had on recently, you need to know the stuff. But once you've read some of him, well, I had Brian Green on, who's this big time physicist a couple of weeks ago. Once you've had Brian on, there's probably some stuff left over from Brian that Michio will bring up. And you go, oh, actually, yeah, that's interesting because isn't there a real fine tuning to the different constants, the cosmic constants of the world and blah, blah, blah. And you go, yeah. And so you end up with this network effect where each podcast you do gives you more stuff to talk about on the next one, even if it's not directly related. And at this point, what is your selection process? Are you Obviously, there's probably a lot of people that come to you and go, hi, Chris, can you feature me on your podcast? But do you look through these emails or do you have, do you have interest in people and then go, I want to talk to them about certain things? Yeah, it's um, kind of always on looking for interesting people. So Twitter, good example. I saw this guy who put this awesome tweet thread out a couple of months ago. And I was like, if this guy can podcast half as good as he can tweet, this will be shit hot. And sure enough, brought him on and he absolutely nailed it. It was fantastic. Sick. He's just some some bloke from America. Very competent, but just some bloke. And you're just always on looking for stuff. Here's a new book that's coming out. This guy's got a new book out. Oh, this dude's in a... So the, the Mauritanian, which is the new film with Benedict Cumberbatch that's on Amazon Prime at the moment, the guy that is the subject of that show needed to promote the show. So I saw he was doing a podcast tour. I found out who his agent was. I emailed him and he came on the show and told me the real story behind the Mauritanian. He was the most tortured man in Guantanamo Bay and tells this story about how he was held there for 14 years without charge. You're like It's just always on the lookout for people like that. I've got partnerships with publishers that makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, like just... You see as well, you got get a little network of other people. And I'm, I'm a fan of the platform too. So I listen to a Rogan or a, a Shapiro or a Sam Harris. And then I'll think, oh, that's a really, really good guest. I, I'll reach out to them. I'll get them on. A couple of quick fires for you. Top three people you've had on your podcast already. 
top three that you would like to have on your podcast that you haven't had already and top three favorite podcasts that aren't yours actual shows rather than have three afterwards as well yeah like the specific show not just be like i like joe rogan like tell me the exact podcast that he did that you liked okay so rory sutherland on mine he is the vice chairman of ogilvy advertising he's one of the best behavioral economists on the planet and just a his insight into how consumer behavior works is ridiculous. He was amazing on my show. Aubrey Marcus really impressed me. It was an earlier, relatively earlier episode, but he is legit. I was trying to see if this guy who's a huge time podcaster could be tripped up and it, it turns out that he can't. And Jordan Peterson, man, that guy delivered. I was very, very surprised at how comfortable that conversation was to do. Um, yeah, he was just—he was just, he was just... how you go toe to toe with arguably one of the most fantastic minds everyone knows about. It right? Fairly, it was everyone, terrifying I, I in advance. Everyone knows Jordan B. Peterson, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I'm, at least everyone should. And I watched—I watched the YouTube version. I was just sat there impressed, not really understanding what was going on. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I stumbled across a few yeah. YouTube videos of his in my time. Yeah. It's like, and this is great two really intelligent people having a conversation let's just watch <laughs> yeah i mean that was that was fun man like and it's cool because the same way as someone who is a sportsman might build up toward a, a competition right you especially with jordan i'm okay there's gonna be a lot of people watching and listening to this i really need to prepare for this and i slept made sure that i'd slept well the night before i'd eaten really well for most of the week so there's a, a concept out there at the moment called being a mental athlete or think like an athlete and it's trying to get all of the other different bits of your life to contribute to whatever your calling is, even if that calling isn't athletics or sport. And um, yeah, the outcomes, the outcomes work. Uh, so that was the first one. Three people that I would like to get on the show that I haven't already. Sam Harris is top of the list. After I've got Jordan on, the guy, Sam's insight into the way that the human mind and consciousness works is outstanding. Ben Shapiro is a big one. I know he's worth an awful lot of plays uh, and he's an interesting guy and he has interesting comments about the world. And Matthew Walker, the guy that wrote Why We Sleep, Sleep Diplomat, he is fantastic. He's a really, really smart dude. Three favorite episodes. Sam Harris's most recent The Final Word on Free Will, which is a 90-minute monologue of just him talking about why free will doesn't exist. So if you haven't, taken the determinism red pill yet then listen to that and it will turn your world upside down it's terror it should come with a, a warning label on it matthew walker the guy that i talked about on why we sleep uh, on joe rogan uh, it's number 1109 completely changed my worldview on sleep and the importance of it and dedicating time to it especially as a club promoter i tracked track my sleep between the age of 22 and 27 and I'd averaged time in bed was six hours and 15 minutes for five years or six years or something. And I watched, listened to that podcast and immediately overnight changed my view on it. And my favorite podcast of all time is Naval Ravikant on Joe Rogan, just the best thinker that's alive at the moment. So I, in fact, actually I'm going to get rid of Matthew out of mine and Naval, Naval's going to take his place for the third one. Sorry, Matthew. But yeah, Naval Ravikant on Rogan. Anyone that hasn't listened to that, it's just, it's outstandingly good. So, so good. Do you know one of my favorites? Mm -hmm. Paul Stamets on Joe Rogan. The one where, he, the tells, the one where he tells the story about where he fixed his stutter in the, the lightning storm. Yeah, exactly. He climbed to the top of that. Amazing. Uh, was it a telephone wire or a tree and then got absolutely Amazing. insane. 
But that's like how how sick is it, right? That some weird outcome of all the different technologies that we have has meant that you can listen to a story like that. This guy, for the people that didn't hear it, this mushroom uh, expert, mycology expert, had a very bad stamina as a kid and took a high dose of psychedelics in the middle of a thunderstorm, climbed up to the top of a tree and fixed his stammer immediately in one go because of how he saw his mind in that moment. And you're like, it's this beautiful sort of 20 minute monologue of him telling the story. And you're like, it's so awesome that we're in a world where you get to hear that sort of stuff. Cause I'm never going to forget that story. And you haven't, you know, like it's sick, sick. Have you ever spoken to him? I guess not. No, he, I probably could get him on the list. I'll wait and see. I think he might have a new book coming out soon. He's pretty busy. He's taking photos of mushrooms a lot. He does that. <laughs> Fucking busy guy. Honestly, mushrooms fascinate me. And one of my favorite facts that I learned fairly recently, probably in the last year, is that fungi are actually more closely related to animals than they are to plants. That blew my mind. They breathe in they, oxygen and out carbon dioxide, right? I just thought they were another plant. Apparently not. Apparently it's split off. Plants went one way, this other branch went the other way, and then fungi and animals came from that one. Blew my mind. Mental. Well, they have uh, the mycelium beneath the surface is a huge communication network, right? You can do stuff to it a couple of miles away, and then a couple of miles further on, things change. It's supposed to be the biggest organism in the world, right? Yeah, I think so. Crazy. Absolutely. Mushrooms. Mushrooms are who we need to worry about. It's not the Israeli conflict that's going on at the moment it's whether the mushrooms come and take over that's what's serious the problem <laughs> do you believe in the stoned ape theory uh no no i don't think so i don't think that man's ascension to a self-aware being occurred because of a good psychedelic trip or a number of good psychedelic trips i think i just believe it because i want an excuse to to take some psilocybin and some mushrooms. Taken, Should have taken them before this. Let's do this again, and we'll all take a moderate dose of psilocybin, and we'll see I what really happens. I really wanted to do a mushroom podcast. I don't know if we can say that. They're natural. They're Maybe. Natural. Just a plan. So <laughs> this is a topic that I wanted to talk about that's completely unrelated to anything we've already spoken about. But the thing that I'm most impressed with of all of the things that you've done, the thousand days of sobriety, the podcast that's now at 200,000 subscribers on YouTube is you're a Soreen athlete. Yeah, I got a sponsorship <laughs> off Soreen. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I, I even went into the depths of your Instagram earlier to find the picture yeah, of you man. with your Soreen t-shirt. Like, that's the most impressive thing. They won't even reply to me. Yeah, their communications, their brand communications needs a lot of work. But yeah, they, um, they are an official partner. Yeah, anybody that knows me knows that I love Soreen and I've been tagging them in stories since October 2018 and they still haven't replied to me. To get, yeah. Somehow you've managed to get yourself a Soreen t-shirt and are you a sponsored athlete of theirs or what? I reached out from the podcast. It was I, I, I'm not an athlete. I mean, I've only got one and a half ankles at the moment, so I don't think I can even call myself a human. But yeah, uh, I just reached out to do with the podcast. And dude, I mean, I, the number of people that me and you have front-ended into the funnel of Soreen is terrifying. Think about how many people you've gone, mate, have you ever had just, just, I need to tell you about this thing. Have you ever had Soreen? Like, no, what is that? Malt loaf. I don't really want that. No, no, look, listen to me. Listen to me. I know it sounds mental, but just 
try it. And then they're a convert and they also pray at the altar of Soreen. But um, yeah, we should, they should have a really strong affiliate model and me and you would be millionaires and we could just retire. <laughs> I was planning on um, actually doing a government, oh, what do you call it? Petition. A petition to get him signed up to Soreen. Otherwise there'd be sort of backlash from especially the functional fitness community and they'd stop buying it and they'd go out, they'd basically go out of, um, out of business. Yeah, and Chris would burn his t-shirt. Well, I, I didn't know if I could get you as you're, you're, too, you're too deep in it, but I feel like it, man. They need, to, they need to give back to dollar bills. Yeah, I think so. I've spent a lot of money on Sorin. As this is the Pure Sport podcast, Chris, how has how is the Pure Sport products for you changed your life or improved or added to it? Is there, is there, are there any findings that you've found from, from the products that have really helped? So for me, I focus on it for sleep. Still now, I think I'm kind of repairing a lot of very poor sleep habits. Um, dude, I feel, I still, I promise you, it feels like I've got sleep debt from the last 10 years. If there's anyone out there that's a sleep researcher that can tell me whether or not that's a thing. I know sleep debt acutely is a thing, but whether you can have chronic sleep debt over long periods of time, um, I need to sleep eight hours, sleep eight hours a night, or I feel wrecked the next day. And it, I can feel it affecting me cognitively. So um, for me, the Unwind product is what I tend to use the most. I gave my mum, I got a cool story from my mum actually, so she tends to wake up throughout the night and um, she heard, listened to the podcast and had heard me talking about Pure Sport, the Unwind nootropic that you guys do and said, oh, look, can you, can you get me some? And um, I actually ran out, so I didn't have any, but I gave her some of the 2000 milligram, which I think is that, that's a different one, right? That's a blend or something, or that's a different sort of flavor than the 3000 and the 1000. Yeah, uh, broad spectrum. That's it. Um, so she took to using some very small, low dose of that, a couple of ticks or whatever, or one one big tick perhaps, and um, that's fixed her waking up throughout the night. So that's the coolest. That's the coolest story, man. Because my mum is classic mum waking up to walk dogs and stuff at some ungodly hour in the morning. So she needs her sleep. So that was my favorite thing of, of it all. Like giving your mum the gift of a good night's sleep is mm. pretty sick. It's one of those things as well, where even though you know it works for you, there's still, there's still that question of, is this, is it placebo or is it just me that feels the benefits? And then when you give it to someone, especially in my eyes, like the older generation that is generally a no, or that's not normal. We have white bread and we have a cup of tea in the morning kind of, kind of people. When, when they truly feel a difference is when I'm like, okay, all right. I, I believe. I'm a convert. Yeah, man. It's I'm cool. So yeah, for me, the unwind on the nighttime makes a, makes a big difference, especially because I spend, as a lot of people will do, spend a lot of time looking at screens, a lot of blue light, a lot of poor UV frequency exposure, just winding down. So I've got my morning routine. I've had it on lock for quite a while, but my Let's evening... Let's get your tips on your routines. Can we get both? Yeah, sure. So um, the format that I use is... Um, Move, reflect, learn, and prepare. That's how my morning gets put together. So I get up, go for a walk, um, come back, have LMNT, uh, so element salts. I have one stick of that in water with some lemon juice. Sit down, journal, meditate, read, um, get up, do a little bit of rehab on my Achilles, so like just stretching and movement and stuff like that. Then cook and get ready for the day. It takes about, the whole thing's about an hour and 45 uh, the journaling process that I use at the moment is the six-minute success journal, which is available on Amazon and is about 20 quid and is really good for 
if you just wake up every day and don't know what you're supposed to do, especially if you're a knowledge worker or self-employed, it'll just fix a lot of those problems. The meditation that I do is Insight Timer is the app, and it's that's just an unguided meditation app. And I'm following Shinzen Young's Five Ways to Know Yourself, which is a free PDF that if you just Google Shinzen Young Five Ways, it'll come up on the internet, and you can check that out. That's really cool. Evening routine is a bit more changeable because there's just stuff that gets in the way. But usually, try and go digital sunset 90 minutes before bed. Go and go for a little bit of an evening walk, especially now the lights are nighter. The nights are lighter. Uh, and then come back, read on a Kindle for half an hour and go to sleep. It's fairly unsophisticated on a night time at the moment. Do you still track your sleep? Uh, I've got a whoop strap, so that does it for me, I suppose. I saw... Um... Just talking about the alcohol thing and whoop, I saw Tom Lowe posted something the other day. Did you see it? He posted that uh, he had a few drinks on a Friday night and the difference of that one night's sleep, it was ridiculous. Well, and I, I was like, oh, like, it can make like a bit of a difference. But just seeing these stats of his his HRV, um, the amount of sleep that he got, I think the quality, how recovered he was the next day, just from having a handful of beers, I think, or something like that made a huge difference. So obviously, like yours must be in the green pretty much every day at the moment. Well, remember that that's only relative. So as you set yourself new goods, the, you, it's continually getting more and more difficult to reach that level. Over time, it's a moving average, right? So if you improve your HRV, that now becomes the average. And to get good, you need to further improve your HRV. So the only way that anyone could consistently get greens for the rest of time would be to have a HRV of like a thousand or something. Highest HRV I've ever seen. I'm on a team, I'm on a whoop team with Ryan Fisher, the CrossFit athlete, and he he's got a HRV in the two thirties on whoop, um, which is the highest that I've ever seen, which is insane. I'm gonna dig mine up. I had a whoop for like two weeks and then I had to get rid of it. It was just telling me you need to go to bed at 6 p.m. And I was like, it's not happening, bro. Like, you, need, <laughs> just like, you need 14 hours of sleep. I was like, not happening. No chance. I'm just going to put it in the bin and ignore it. Will made me have a coffee at 3 p.m. <laughs> Wrecked it. Yeah, I spiked your coffee, bro. How do you feel about it, bitch? Just extra <laughs> caffeine in there. Just dropping pro <laughs> plus some in caffeine with your coffee. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> See how you go. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think uh, people are going to get a lot of value out of that podcast. Um, I get a lot of value out of listening to pretty much every single Modern Wisdom podcast and have been for a long time. So really thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man. You've got a lot going on. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me on, boys. Yo, thank you, Pure Sport fan, for tuning in. As a valued listener, we'd like to offer you a 20% discount code site-wide on puresportcbd.com. Use the code PROJECT20 to level up your life. If you like this podcast, like, subscribe and share with your friends. And remember, no stress, stay blessed and we'll catch you next time.